0: the following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Ready for our study tonight? This is exciting. One of the most thrilling chapters in the Bible, Romans 8, and we're right in the middle of uh, one of the best sections uh, when we ran out of time last time so let's pray and we'll we'll dig in father thank you for uh, this evening thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and study your word tonight and pray that you would be with us um, send forth your holy spirit you said very plainly that the spirit will lead us into all truth and um, you also said sanctify them by the truth your word is truth so lead us tonight as we deal with some of the deepest and, and most encouraging and most powerful verses in the Bible on your saving intention and purpose in Christ, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're, at Ro- we're in Romans chapter 8, and I would love it if somebody be willing to read um, the section that we're studying tonight. Uh, if somebody could pick up at Romans eight twenty-eight and actually just go ahead and read to the end of the chapter, even though we won't get that far tonight, I would love it. Romans eight twenty-eight 28 to uh, the end, it's maybe 30, 39 or something like that.
2: And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, he could be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who lives the one who condemns? No one. <clears throat> Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in our Lord.
1: Thank you so much. Alright, so we are right in the middle of this uh, series of statements last week that he makes in verses 29 and 30. And then I've gone on uh, to extend into verses 31 through 35 and we'll just get as far as we can. But I don't see any good uh, benefit in hurrying through these verses, some of the deepest and richest verses in the Bible. Um, so, verse 29, those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. So we were right at the point last week of talking about foreknowledge, all right? And I said that there are two basic approaches to this series of foreknowledge leading to predestination, uh, leading to calling, leading to justification, leading to glorification. So the whole series begins with uh, foreknowledge, foreknowledge. And there are two basic approaches on this foreknowledge. And the foreknowledge, uh, the word fore means ahead of time. Um, beforehand and the two approaches are on the one hand that God knows things about people and on the basis of his knowledge about them differentiates between them and others and, and chooses them and predestines them on the basis of things he knows about what they will be. Alright? And the other approach is that God foreknows people. And by that, we would understand in an electing sort of way coming into a relationship with them in his mind, in his heart. All of this is in the mind of God before anybody exists. We all know that the prefix for means that before they exist. Um, but that God has a relationship with them, like a covenant relationship, and then everything flows from that. So the, one, the first system is generally seen to be the Arminian system of understanding predestination. And generally what's foreknown about individuals is that they will believe, that they will have faith. He sees that God sees ahead of time that in due time they will become Christians. And he responds to that to some degree, responds to that foreseen faith, and everything flows from that. Uh, The other is the sense of uh, God knowing people. And knowing about them is a subset of that. It's not denying that God knows all about them, but that's not what this word means. It's that He knows them in an intimate relating sort of way. We were right at the point of talking about that last time—the uh, this kind of knowing, foreknowledge. Now, for myself, I believe the the latter of those two is the proper way to understand it. First of all, it is the most grammatically consistent. Um, There is a difference grammatically between knowing something about somebody and knowing somebody, right? Um, Knowing somebody. And and which of these two uh, is stated here? Does the verse say that God knows things about people or does the verse say that God knows people? And what would be the significance of the difference between the two? What is the significance of God knowing someone? Not merely knowing about them, but knowing them.
2: Knowing is an intimate relationship. Like I say, I
3: know about the president who and who. I don't have a relationship. I don't know him in a relationship.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Yeah.
4: And for a being to have
3: formed formed me and everyone before I was even born in my mother's womb. Right. He's a creator.
1: Absolutely. But he
3: knows what he created.
1: Right. And there are some verses that I think help us in this regard. There's a lot of them, like in Amos, I think Amos three two, uh, God says to Israel, You only have I known among all the nations of the earth. Now, clearly God is not saying, I don't know anything about the Amorites or the Hittites or Perizzites. God knows all about them. Everything. What then is he saying in Amos 3.2 about Israel? You only have I known among all the nations of the earth. What does that mean? Covenant. I would say so. Covenant relationship, which in other places he likens to marriage openly. I mean, as I've, I've cited before, for example, the, uh, the whole uh, story about God's relationship with Jerusalem in which she is uh, portrayed in, a, in like an extended parable to be a, an orphan waif thrown out in the field, kicking around in her blood. And God says, I passed by and looked on you and said to you, live, and you lived. And then in due time you grew, and when I saw that you were ready for love, ready for marriage, I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I entered into covenant with you, and you became mine. No one's wondering what that means. It's a metaphor for God's intimate covenant relationship with his people Israel. Now the story goes very bad for the rest of Ezekiel 16. It's very, you know, it's similar to Hosea. She becomes unfaithful. She's unfaithful. But there's that, that knowing. Then you have other examples, as I cited last week. Probably the clearest for our purpose here is Jesus' statement Um, many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles then I will tell them plainly I never knew you away from me you evildoers now what does he mean by saying that I never knew you away from me you evildoers is he saying I I don't know anything about you I never met you I have no conception of even who you are is that what he's saying? Mm-hmm. How do you know, right from the verse, that that's not what he's saying?
2: He has no fellowship with them; mm-hmm. they are not part of him,
3: has no business with their evil
1: acts. That's what it—that's what it means. I think that's true. But how can we prove from the verse that it, God is not, or Jesus is not saying, "I don't know anything about you"? He calls them evil lures. So He knows everything about them. He also knows that they prophesied in His name and drove out demons in His name and did all these other things. He knows all that. they are not surprised. He's, it's not knowledge about them that's the problem. It's that he did not come into a covenant, intimate, knowing relationship with them. The clearest picture of this, the mysterious picture, as we said in Ephesians 5, is the relationship between a husband and a wife, even that, that one flesh union. The two became one flesh. Paul says is a profound mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so we have back in Genesis where the euphemism of knowing, everybody knows knows what it means. Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son, Cain. So, And again, we use the same analogy with Mary, the Virgin Mary, saying, I, how is this possible for me to have a, a child? I, I don't know a man. And again, she's not saying she doesn't know anybody. She's not acquainted with them or has no relationship. She's actually betrothed at that point to Joseph, but they have never been sexually intimate. But that's a euphemism. Uh, the knowing is a euphemism for sexual relating. But in a larger sense, then a picture of a an intimate covenant relationship, and I think that's more likely here, uh, with this sense of foreknowledge. God comes into a covenant relationship with people who are not born yet, and n- unites Himself to them. And on the basis of that foreknowledge, everything goes on from there. The alternative is that God is in a reactive state to the faith of the individuals seeing that they will have a a faith that is in some way independent of Him. And that doesn't really line up with what He's going to say in Romans 9 where He says before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose and election might stand not by works but by Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Well, in the, the logic of that verse is before they were born or had done anything good or bad means it's not on the basis of any of those things. And also, we need to understand, it's very, very important, we need to understand cause and effect. That this thing precedes that thing and therefore is the ground or cause of that thing is everything in this logic here and in this understanding of predestination and all that. Is the ground or cause of the predestination faith, the human faith, or is the ground or cause of it within It's ultimately, is it within God or is it within the individual? That's the ultimate ground. And the sequence matters. That's why Romans 9 says before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, the sequence matters. Before they did anything, meaning it's not on that basis. And uh, an example of this, I think, the sequencing, a very important example of this is the stilling of the storm. Okay? Remember the story, Jesus is asleep in the boat. The boat's filling with water. Okay? And then the disciples wake Jesus up and say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And he gets up and stretches out his hand over the, the sea and says, Peace, be still. And instantly the storm abates and the, and the sea becomes quiet. Some would say one of the most spectacular miracles Jesus ever did. Well, the reaction of the men in the boat is, they're overwhelmed what kind of man is this even the wind and the waves obey him right well let's rearrange the order a little bit let's say Jesus is asleep in the boat the boat's filling up with water then suddenly for no reason it seems the storm stops and then 20 minutes later Jesus gets up stretches after his nap and stretches his hand over the now quiet sea and says peace be still Would you call that a miracle if you'd been in the boat? I'd be like wondering about Jesus that he could sleep through that whole thing thinking, you know, he really kind of failed us, but in the end it worked out okay. I wouldn't think Jesus had anything to do with the stilling of the storm, right? Before, after. The sequence matters. It's the same thing in Romans 4. Did Abraham get circumcised after or before he was declared righteous? It was not after but before. The sequence matters. It's not the ground of His righteousness. The circumcision is not the ground of His righteousness. The sequence matters. So that's the whole point of predestination. That's the whole point of foreknowledge. Before they're born, before anything happens, not on the basis of anything in the man. That's, that's why the cause and effect, it can't be in them because they don't even exist yet. God's not responding to a faith that, that doesn't even exist yet. Instead, God determines Uh, That's what foreknowledge is you know uh, on the basis of the foreknowledge it goes now the other the other approach I understand it. Um, I think there's a desire to kind of protect God from being the ultimate cause causal factor of people being in hell I think that's always the reason why Um, But at any rate any questions about foreknowledge before we go on to predestination Questions comments yeah
2: um, when Jesus says, uh, you love, or John, John, we love because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. It's like
1: that's like that's clear. Yeah. It's the ground. Would you all say that, it, that, that the ground of our love is his prior love for us? <coughs> I think you'll be safe to say that. <laughs> I think God would be honored by that statement. And I think, frankly, I think that's what the verse is teaching. I actually would extend it, though the Bible doesn't say it. I think it's true theologically. We choose because He first chose us. I actually believe that's true as well. God's choosing of us, His election of us, precedes our choosing of Him. Do we choose Christ by our own will? Yes or no? no. You don't have a will? Do you have a will? Do you make decisions? Let's keep it simple. Do you make decisions? Yes. No have you decided to follow Christ you probably even sung the song all right (laughs) so yes you decided there's nothing wrong with saying I chose to follow Christ but I'm just going to pick up on the verse that Stephanie said I chose because he first chose me that's why I chose him so my choosing of him is contingent on his prior choosing of me not the other way around and the other way around really that is the system you know, um, that is the system. I had uh, somebody I knew long ago, and, and he did not agree with me theologically on, this, on these things. And he said, I do believe in election. I believe that God chooses once we uh, trust in Christ. He chooses you. So that's definitely reversed. It's like we choose Christ, and then based on that, oh, and then God elects us. Um, But that's just not what's taught in the Bible. The Bible says that the election happened before the foundation of the world. So a more kind of robust, intelligent Arminian position is, yeah, the election does happen before the foundation of the world, because the Bible says so, but it's based on that foreseen faith. That's how they argue. Um, But others just haven't thought it through. So this individual, and they said, yeah, I believe in election. God chooses us once we choose him. And it just doesn't line up with even the language of the Bible. See what I'm saying? All right, let's move on. Go ahead.
3: So it's not on the basis of whether they've done anything good or bad, and I agree with that. Um, Is it not on the basis that they did bad that God ultimately, the sin of unbelief that God ultimately condemns anyone in hell?
1: Yeah, yeah. There are causal factors for judgment Yeah. Yeah, because we sin. Yeah, that's the reason that he condemns people is because they have committed sin. That's why I'm against infant damnation and other things like that because the depictions in j- of Judgment Day always are court is seated, the books are open, the dead are judged based on what they did as recorded in the books. It's definitely based on, on works and on, on sins. So.
3: so then the free choice is still there ultimately, right, for the person that is at the age of accountability.
1: Yeah, yeah they're making real choices. Yeah. They're making, they're make, and actually their intentionality is everything. You know, they, they intend evil, they intend, they make choices, etc. I'm, I'm always careful about the word free because I really think it's important we understand that the, 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 the will, the mechanism of choosing is fettered to the heart. And the heart is all about loving and hating. That's what the heart does for a living. The heart understands, comprehends, and then loves or hates. That's what the heart is wired to do. And we love what we love and we hate what we hate and then we make choices based on it. That's, that's how, how the will always works. Any other things? Yeah, go ahead, brother.
4: Pastor, if election is, is a condition necessary for salvation mm-hmm. and, and a baby doesn't have election, I don't understand the baby exception.
1: Why wouldn't the baby be elect? I think every human being is elect or reprobate. Every single person is addressed. There's no accidental people.
4: So again, if baby is even by God in all eternity past to be
1: reprobate
4: in elect then I don't understand your comment about the faith exception
1: well the reason is because of the depictions of judgment and what I would call a public vindication of God's justice public vindication of God's justice in other words people do bad things and it's the universe watching is like what's going to be done about this and so God has to vindicate his justice If you look at Romans 3, it says that God presented Christ as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's a sense of an onlooking universal audience watching And God has to give an account almost, it seems, in that regard, to that onlooking. He doesn't owe anybody anything. But when Nathan the prophet says to David, you are the man. Remember when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered Uriah to cover it up? Remember that whole thing? Terrible, terrible story, right? And then Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him. And he says, I have sinned. Do you remember what Nathan said to him? The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Now you could imagine just stop right there and say wait a minute. Just wait a minute. How is that just? Where is the justice for that? Like let's say you had been Uriah the Hittite's parents at the court trial and the judge says to the guilty individual who's admitted he did this, you're acquitted, you're not guilty, you're, you're not going to die. Isn't there some justice being cried for? It's a public, a public cry for justice. So, What I'm saying is with the infant that dies in infancy, there is no clamoring for justice based on the actions of the infant. That's all I'm saying. There's no need for public vindication. As a matter of fact, if if there's a sense the child's died, it's the other way around. There's a sense of where is the justice in that? So that's how I would argue that and mostly it just comes from reading the accounts of judgment of justice. It's always based on works, based on what they've done. Any other thoughts on that? I think you're going to
4: be internally consistent that people are either elect or
1: they're intellect from eternity past. And
4: we got to let the chips fall where they may thereafter. Yeah, I understand. It's a hard time reconciling anything else.
1: Right. Uh, I can tell you this. I've been thinking about these things for a long, long time, and there's always a battle to be consistent. <laughs> you know, uh, the Armenians have to stay away from universalism. That's the hard thing for them. And the Calvinists have to stay away from uh, determinism. You know, that, that there's actual real choices. Those are the, those are the poles that they're, they're trying to stay away from. So let's keep going. Uh, the next topic is predestination. Predestination is, you know, those whom he foreknew predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. What does the word mean to you when you think of predestination? I mean, what, is, what comes to your mind? What is that conception to you? The word predestination.
2: Predetermined.
1: Predetermined. Okay, something being determined ahead of time. Again, the prefix pre So ahead of time. Anyone else? Predestination.
3: Destination is the place
1: you go. Okay, you're going somewhere. So it's where you're ending up. It's your your final uh, place. And then pre, then the where you finally end up is where you were pre, pre something to, to be. All right, you're gonna end up. All right, whatever that is. Um, the Greek word is pro orizo. Pro orizo. The orizo word is from which we get the word horizon. I think it relates, in my opinion, to boundary lines. Um, If you remember the division of the land uh, by the, uh, in the book of Joshua and the lot is cast and then the, the land, the land is divided and there's a boundary line laid down, so you can imagine a boundary line and what do those boundary lines signify? The boundary lines?
2: Inheritance.
1: Okay, your inheritance, right? David says in Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. What does he mean by boundary lines there? He's talking about his own life. And what are his boundary lines? What, is it, what does it represent? I mean, do you guys, any of you own property? All right. Don't you have a map? Isn't there some limit to it? <laughs> There's a limit, okay? It's like this is, the, this is the edge. Everything on this side of the line is mine. Everything on that side of the line is not mine. That's it, boundary line. And there are markers, there are markers. As a matter of fact, it was a very bad thing to move a boundary marker. That's theft. You're really th- stealing somebody's inheritance. It's a big deal. So that's the whole boundary line thing. I would argue that when he slept with Bathsheba, and took another man's wife. That was a violation of a boundary line. She was not included in his boundaries. You see what I'm saying? He was he was tra- he transgressed. He went across the boundary line that God had set up. So these boundary lines. How important are boundary lines in God's universe? Let's talk about walls, boundaries, limits, borders. How important would you say all that stuff is? Yeah. Would you say every creature has a limit? has a boundary, a range, a realm, a place. We all do, everybody does. Will that be true in heaven? New heaven, new earth, or is it like anything goes? I think there still have to be boundaries. There's still limits, there's still boundaries. Every creature has boundaries, limits. And so that's the idea. So if that's the concept of boundary line and what you get, what's assigned to you is inside your allotted area, inside your boundary, if that's what we're talking about, what's allotted to you would include the things that are yours, the things that have been given to you. It's so like for me, it's Christy as my wife, five kids, you know, now four granddaughters, praise God, two weeks old now, um, pretty exciting, no grandsons yet, it's not been allotted to me yet, um, maybe in the future, who knows, but there's boundary lines, okay, so I think that's what orizo means. What does pro-aridzo then mean? Before. Beforehand what? Your, your boundaries are set for you. Beforehand. That's what I think pre, pre, uh, predestination is. And within that would include the things that are given to you as a gift. Things that are bl- and all of it comes from God, but these are things are given to you. And God determines ahead of time well, what's yours. There are so many examples of this, by the way. You remember... Um, the story about the mother of, of, of James and John coming to Jesus and asking that he would grant that one of her sons would sit at his right hand and the other at his left in, in the kingdom. Remember that? And then Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm, I'm drinking uh, or I'm going to drink and the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? We can, they said, having no idea what he was talking about. And then he said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to give those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. What is Jesus saying there? The actual seats of honor in his kingdom at the right or the left, would you say that he's saying they're predestined? Yeah. Is he saying who they're predestined to? Does he tell James and John who they are predestined to be given to? No. Could it be James and John? Yes, but maybe No. <laughs> All right, all all he's saying, those seats belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Okay, so that's what predestination means. Now, in this context, the predestination is related to salvation. They're predestined to be saved. They're predestined to to become Christians. So, redemption, salvation, faith in Christ is is allotted to them. It's part of their inheritance. It's been given to them. And that's um, what it says also in in another use of predestined is in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just say it. Um, For those whom God foreknew, oh no, that's um, uh, Romans. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. So predestination there is adoption. They're predestined to be adopted. Do you see that harmonizing with predestination here in Romans 8, 29 and 30? Do you see any correlation between being predestined to be adopted as sons and the predestination in Romans 8? Yes, but is there a difference then between
2: the elect and predestined?
1: No. no. It's the same thing. But it's just different. It's different. Elect means choosing. Predestination is, I think, to some degree, what is chosen for them. People are elect. Predestination is what they get. And among what they get is all the blessings of the gospel. I think they're exactly harmonizable. In Ephesians 1, predestined to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and will here. Uh, predestined to be um, those whom he predestined he also called. Those he called he justified. Those he justified he also glorified. And in verse uh, 29 it says those whom God foreknew, he knew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's, that's adoption, part of the family of God. So yeah, go ahead, brother. So
4: not all of Israel, God's word hasn't failed, because not all Israel is Israel. So, but all Israel were elect, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Elect for what, though?
4: Uh, yeah, so that, that goes back to I Eileen's mean, question. Like, what's the difference there? You you completed the two, and I'm just wondering, okay, not all of Israel, they were elect, but they, we would argue they didn't have faith, not all of Israel was Israel. So, right. How do you, what's the distinction?
1: yeah election just means choosing but the question is for what and I wasn't trying to conflate anything what I'm saying is that there is election they were elect as a nation to serve a certain role in redemptive history but that doesn't mean every individual Jew was elect for eternal personal salvation that is not true so there's different elections so they do have an election but not necessarily individual election or else why would Paul be grieving over the Jews grieving over those that are not believers because they are Jews they are part of one election but the real election that's going to matter in the end is this individual personal election that's uh, what we're talking about but those whom he pre he says um, those whom he foreknew he predestined and what does he what does it say he predestined them for in this verse
3: to be conformed to the image of His Son.
1: Okay, what is, Wes, what does that mean to you? To be conformed to the image of His Son? I'm sitting
3: here thinking I was going to ask you the same Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's a powerful image because we have in Christ the perfection, mm-hmm. an obedient Son, so to be adopted as Son, mm-hmm. but also adopted to be mm-hmm. conformed to the image of the Son. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an ongoing work of conformity to Christ okay. that I think ultimately will be finished when it gets to the end of this line of reasoning when we're glorified because even the firstborn language of being conformed as images of firstborn uh, with the resurrection body and all that we look forward to as, as those who are in Christ
1: yeah yeah conformed is a very interesting word uh you know like shaped this kind of thing um in my book infinite journey I talk about the two patterns of discipleship uh, the pattern of sound doctrine and the pattern of, of godly example of of li- the life pattern and the doctrine pattern, and um, you get the one in Second Timothy one thirteen where it says, um, "What you have heard from me keep as the pattern." The Greek word is tupos, the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. There's a pa- pattern of sound doctrine, tupos, uh, pattern, and then. Um, in Philippians three seventeen, I was remember, 16 or 17, I can never remember, one of those two. It says, um, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern you have in us. Same Greek word, tupos. So that's a, a role modeling pattern, okay, a lifestyle, kind of a godly example, follow my example as I follow Christ. And then you've got a doctrinal pattern, which is sound, sound teaching, all right. The Greek word used in both cases is tupos. And that has to do with the minting of coins. Okay, the minting of coins. Now, this Sunday I'm going to preach on Jesus answering the question about taxation. Do you remember how he answered it? He used an object lesson. What was the object he used for the lesson? The coin. And he asked a question about the coin. Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's. Is the answer. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. All right. Now, what I'm, I'm saying, just from a mechanical engineering point of view, Jesus didn't ask the question. But I'm asking, how did Caesar get his image on the gold coin to begin with or the silver coin? It was minted there. How does that happen? By the two posts. It's a pattern. And the coin is the verb is often used struck the coin is struck so the thing with a precious metal is it's soft silver and gold are soft and the two post is hard harder than the than the gold or the silver you could imagine it being made out of very hardened metal like for us it would be steel all right and the the two post has a contour which has the beautiful face of the Emperor so the artist somehow is able to make the two posts in that kind of like photographic negative almost of what they want struck on the, on the coin. You have the obverse and reverse, the head, heads and tails. right? And so you would put like the tails, two posts on one side, and you'd put the heads, two posts on the other, and you'd put the blank coin, a disc with nothing on it, just gold, a gold disc or silver disc, and then you would strike it. Now you have the coin, and they all look the same. That's how the coins fermented. All right, what does that have to do with anything? Nothing, it's just a cool, interesting story. Let's just move on. No, um, it has to do with conformed. All right, if you were to go down to the molecular level, and you were to watch, let's just take the top side, the heads side, and the two post comes down, and it has contours like, like hills and valleys, like at the microscopic level, right? The high points and low points make up the shape of, the, of Caesar's face, right? Slow motion, the high points meet the coin, the, the gold, and smush it. You understand what I'm saying? They smush it. It is essential for the coin designer, for the creator of the two posts, for the two posts to win that battle. What do I mean by that? For the, for the two posts to win the battle against the gold or the silver why it's essential for the whole process why is it you don't want to to ruin the die after one coin it has to win and win and win and win and win so they can mint many coins it's got to be very strong very hard and it is all right well that is a picture of salvation god's word is unbreakable god's word cannot be broken god's word is going to break you it's going to smush you do you need to be smushed? Oh, you wouldn't believe how much you need to be smushed. You need to be conformed to Christ, and that happens by salvation. The salvation process is a conforming process. And you are predestined when all said and done to be to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Does that make sense? In the end then, he will be like many brothers. In, in, you know, and your translation says brothers and sisters. I understand why, but the Greek word is brothers, but it just represents the the believers, the family of God. So the people of God, both men and women, in heaven are completely conformed to Christ in his mind, his heart, even in his body. I'm not saying we all look like Jesus, but we all have resurrection bodies like his. Does that make sense? We will be like him in every respect. That's the finish line of salvation. Does that make sense? And I think conform to the likeness of his son equals glorified in the next verse. That's the same. That's what glorified means. We are like him, glorious. Any questions about that?
3: And is this the same word that he uses later in Romans 12?
1: Yeah, go ahead and read it, Romans 12.
3: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the... I'm
1: not sure, I'm, I'm not sure but it's likely to be so. I, I, it's been a while since I looked at those those words, but how how would you see the similarity between you know be conformed to Christ, do not be conformed to the world. Go ahead. Well,
3: it's just that there's pressure exerted both ways. Oh yeah. Pressure of the world exerted on us to con to conform to right. be like the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but by God's grace through the Spirit, there's the work of conforming us to Christ that's yeah. going as well.
1: Yeah, it's a battle, and we are very smushable. I mean, we really are. We we are we are impact is made on us. So that's why you've got to be very careful what you watch, what you read, what you hear, what you do, because you're affected by it. That's what Romans 12 is saying. Don't let the world conform you to its lusts and its evils and all that, but be conformed to Christ. Be transformed. And being transformed, the other word transformed, would be similar to being conformed to the image of Christ here, I would say. Anyway, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, meaning we will be conformed. That's our destiny. That's where we're heading. No one will not be conformed. By the way, Jesus' version of saying this is similar. Uh, He says three times in John 6, I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. He says it in John 6. a beautiful statement. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I shall lose none, but raise him up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to this Son uh, will something, anyway, John 6, uh, and I will raise him up at the last day. We'll, we'll believe in him and I'll raise him up at the last day. Anyway, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean? I will raise him up on the last day.
4: Resurrection.
1: Resurrection. That, dear friends, is the finish line of our salvation. When you receive a glorious resurrection body, as he says in Matthew 13:43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You will be completely conformed to Christ. You will shine like him. That's the finish line of your individual salvation. That's what you're destined for in Christ. And God chose that for you before the foundation of the world. It's incredible that you would end up glorious. And there'd be lots of us. He's the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean to you? Firstborn among many brothers. He was resurrected first. Okay. And we you know, he's like the the elder brother in the whole family. He's the he's the heir and he's the leader and we're we're like him, but he's the firstborn. He's you know, he's in the preeminent so in everything Christ would have preeminence. He's the preeminent member of the family. But he, he says he we are brothers. He calls us brothers. In the book of Hebrews he calls us brothers and sisters. So we, we have that la- la- language. All right, next verse. And those um, verse 20, verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Now, what does that mean, he called? The word called. It's a very important word. is does it mean?
2: Calls
1: to believe. Calls for
2: salvation. Okay, yeah. It's effectual.
1: It is, yes, I believe that. There are two calls that happen um, both of them are important, both indispensable. Um, but we have, to, we have to look at a verse uh, that's hard to harmonize here, but after a while you start to understand that the only way you can harmonize it is you, you understand that there's two calls. Okay? Many are called, but few are chosen. It's like, oh, that's a head-scratcher. Why did Jesus have to say that? What does he mean by many are called, but few are chosen? Okay, clearly not everyone in that verse, not everyone who's called is chosen. So there's a calling that isn't related to election there. So therefore, there are two calls. And What are they? All right. There's the physical, audible even call of the gospel when someone proclaims the message. They preach it. Many hear that, but few are chosen. Okay. That's what Jesus means by many are called. Paul means something different by called here. There's a different kind of call that you get in, in Romans 4 which says God calls things that are not as though they were. He gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. When God calls, let's say, let there be light, what happens? There's light. there's light. That's God's sovereign calling. That's what's here. It's the calling of power, it's the word preceding the reality. God calls, let there be light, and there's light. Similar to that is a picture of Lazarus' resurrection. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and what happens? He comes alive and comes forth that's the call the vivifying call it's the call of power the call of life that's something we cannot do something only God can do but that calling is the the Word of God going the spiritual invisible sovereign effectual Word of God giving life that's what's going on here but amazingly it happens at the audible practical physical calling you have to hear of Christ in order to be saved right in, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Different calling. Different, I'm going to get confusing here, but don't worry about that. Everyone calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call in one they have not believed in? How can they believe in someone of whom they have never what? Heard. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing what? The audible call. The external call. So there's an external call and an internal call. And they happen. They work together. The internal call does not happen apart from the external call. I mean, God could do that, but he's not choosing to do that. He wants the gospel spread into the world. So the church's job is to do evangelism and missions and get the audible call out there. Right? And so we just preach the gospel. And we just put it out there. And, you know, and this is a thing in the debate between Calvinists and Arminians. You know, a lot of times the Arminian folks get upset at Calvinist folks saying that it's a disingenuous thing because it's not an honest offer of the gospel. Because we're, we're, you know, like Billy Graham or whatever, you're preaching to 5,000 people and you're like saying, God is saying to all of you, come, and all that, and that's disingenuous because we know he's only really calling the elect. Look, that's not our business. You understand? We're, the doctrine is there for us to learn and understand, but our job is to preach indiscriminately to everybody. Isn't it? We don't, we don't know who's elect or not elect. We, we don't know. So our job is just the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel to everybody. That's the many are called part. That's our job. Does that make sense? So it's not disingenuous at all. I'm not as I'm doing that. When I get up to preach on Sunday morning, I know that there's lost people listening to me. I know that when I preach the gospel, you know, at some point in the sermon, I know that I'm calling to lost people, hoping they'll cross over from death to life. There's nothing disingenuous about it. I'm very, very aware of election and predestination when I'm doing that. But my job is just preach Christ. By the way, Jesus did the same thing very, very plainly. Uh, and that's in um, uh, Matthew 11:28. 28. Uh, you remember there, he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. That's Jesus preaching to everybody. But he already said a few verses later that none of them are going to come except the elect. He said, actually Matthew 11, 21 through 27 is some of the strongest election sovereignty verses there are in the whole Bible. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethside. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up the skies? No, you go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, they would have remained to this day. But it's going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. What does he say next? I have no idea. I'll read it. Hang on. is what happens when you get old you forget stuff all right but what else does he say i'll look and remember all right at that time jesus said i praise you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children yes father for this was your good pleasure all things have been committed to me by my father no one knows the son except the father And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. That's election language, friends. That's Jesus deciding who he's going to reveal the Father to. And he gets to do that because he's God. He gets to decide who lives and who doesn't. He really does. He says that. You have granted him authority over all men that he might give life to all those whom you have given him that's election language right he has that power he has that right but then what does he do come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i'll give you rest it's an indiscriminate call to everybody so for me i don't know how many times in my 25 years i preached matthew eleven twenty-eight to everybody come to christ all you who are weary and burdened and who comes well we know who's going to come <laughs> those that are predestined right those that are chosen before the foundational world, that's who is, who's going to come. So that's what calling means. Any questions about call? There's two calls the external audible call and the internal sovereign call that is effectual, effectual. Any questions about that? All right, those, and by the way, notice the time frame. It hasn't happened yet, but he uses past tense. Those he called, but he hasn't called them yet. It's just, he uses past tense, as I mentioned last week, because it's effectively like a done deal. It's so guaranteed. It's so certain to happen. He uses the past tense. We definitely know nobody's been glorified, right? We know that. And yet he uses past tense with that. Those, yeah, go ahead. Could
4: you be referring to people he's already called and are already saved?
1: In Romans? Romans 8?
4: Yeah.
1: Oh, but nobody's glorified yet. Nobody's glorified yet. Okay. And he still uses past tense. So I think he's just being consistent. All he's talking about is the elect. The elect were, pre, the elect were foreknown, the elect were predestined, the elect were justifi- uh, called, the elect were justified, the elect were glorified. It's a series saying everyone who is A is also B, everyone who is B is also C. It's a chain. Every, nobody gets the first one but not the others. That's, that's the point he's making. Everybody uh, that begins ends. Alright, so those he called, what's next after called? Those he called he what? justified everyone that God calls gets justified and by the way it's interesting every one of the elect the chosen ones the predestined ones get called does that mean that they get the external call and how does the external call get delivered to them and how does that happen Romans 10 says they got to be sent so what does that tell you about the missionary enterprise (laughs) Is it 50-50, 80-20, 90-10? Or do these verses say every single one of the elect people will hear the gospel? I'm saying they're going to hear. And by the way, Jesus says this in Matthew 24:14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Is he saying this gospel of the kingdom ought to be preached in the whole world? No, he's not saying that. He's saying it will be. So I used to say these things as an IMB trustee, which I no longer am. I am now an IMB ex-trustee, <laughs> former trustee. But it's just confidence. Missions is going to work. It's going to work. That shouldn't make us lazy. That should make us raise money and send people. But the point is, everyone of the elect will, at the right time, in due time, they will hear the gospel. That's pretty cool. And everyone of the elect that is called in the effectual call, they're justified. Meaning they're forgiven. They're declared righteous by God. They're conformed to the uh, standing of Christ's righteousness. Everything you get at justification, they all get it, 100%. And those he justified, he also glorified. Is it possible for someone to become unjustified? Justified one day, not justified the next. Is that possible? Of course not. Is it possible for an individual to cross over from death to life? Yeah, John 5, 24 says that they will cross over from death to life. Is it possible for those people later to cross back over from life back to death? No, they can't. It's not possible. There's no way that Christ is going to give his living children back over to the the God of death, Satan. He's not going to do it. He's not going to lose any of them. So all of those that are called get justified and all, 100% of the justified are glorified. 100%. They're going to end up glorified. Which equals conform to the image of Christ. Patrick, yes, sir.
4: We had a good um, uh, observation at one of our men's breakfast about uh, you know, the, the secret Arminian command script um, that you know connects a, a person's in uh, God's palm. And of course, you know when you turn it over, you can't, you you won't be you will fall out of his palm. You can't snap from his palm except if you're an Arminian, and then you have a little command script that you can reach up and and, and release. Right? And I think that's it's a good moment to, to point that out. Okay. That, that God has done the God it. yeah.
1: That's true, and and I think that's you know I I'd never never heard that before. It's it's really uh, interesting. There's always new ways to phrase it. I'd not heard that one before. Thank you. But that's a that's exactly where we're going. You know the next verses. Look what he says. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up uh, for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Right? Christ Jesus, who died, is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. So, yeah, I mean, God justifies. Who could be? Who could condemn? It's not possible so I love that thank you for saying that now look uh, I want to show you the outline I've, I've done and I just kind of went ahead of it like I did last time and just taught the section 31 through 34 the God who is for us the work of the Father is specifically in view in verses 28 through 33 God the Father causes all things to work together for good God the Father foreknows His chosen children. God the Father predestines His chosen children. It is God the Father who calls them. It is God the Father who justifies them. It is God the Father who then glorifies them. The focus is on God the Father. The work of the Son, God the Son, Jesus, is in view in verses 34 through 37. The Son's fourfold ministry as our high priest. That's what's in verses 34 through 37. And then it celebrates the unchanging love of God The the hymn of celebration just gets celebrated in verses 38 and 39. So that's where we're going to the end of the chapter. Now there are six questions that come in verses 31 through 35. What shall we say in response to this? It's the first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the second question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's the third question. That's the third question. Who will lay any charge against God's elect? That's the fourth question. It is Christ who died. Who is he that condemns? Fifth question. And then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Six questions. Paul uses this kind of rhetorical question technique. I already quoted in, in, in uh, Romans 10, 13 through 15. Uh, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? Question mark. How can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? Question mark. Paul does this. This is a rhetorical questions. It's questions asked for an effect. That's what he's doing. Now, four of these questions focus on possible enemies or adversaries to our soul. Like like there's an adversary trying to attack this whole process. Right? You get a sense of that. Like somebody's against this whole thing. Like who could be against us? Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us from Christ? Like someone's trying to do that. An enemy is trying to do that. Alright? So that's the, the context here is conflictual. It's warfare language. It's, it's like a fighting thing. By the way, is that true? Is there anyone that's attacking this whole process? Yes. Yes satan is you know the world of flesh and the devil are hostile to this process fight it every step of the way what is paul saying about the enemies that are fighting this whole process
2: not gonna win.
1: they're gonna lose they're not gonna win and why because god is for us that's why now what is the significance of that statement i mean it's if god is for us who can be against us it implies clearly god is for us and there's no doubt about that. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. More than that, God, just God for us. He's, and what does that mean? God is for us.
2: He fights for
1: us. Okay. And what does that mean for us? If God is for us, fighting for us, namely, ultimately, our salvation, what does that mean? It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. God never loses. We're talking about omnipotence. All right? I remember. Um, when I was in Haiti, I'll never forget this, I saw a young, uh, a teenager, a uh, Haitian young man with an uh, American uh, t-shirt on, and it had a picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It was a Christian t-shirt. I'd never seen it before. Pretty amazing artwork. Pretty scary, because there's fire all around, and there they are, you know, doing fine, right in the middle of the fiery furnace, and it was something, I, it was like some song, maybe you know the lyrics, but they didn't bow, they didn't bend, they didn't something or other. And the the lyrics were there, and it's like they they didn't yield to Nebuchadnezzar's wicked command to bow down to his idol, right? And God delivered them. So I started talking. I used the kid's uh, T-shirt as an opportunity to to preach the gospel. Now, you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? Um, If you do not bow down and worship the idol I've made, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. Then what God will be able to deliver you from my hand? You remember that statement made by Nebuchadnezzar? Do you realize how arrogant that is? What God will be able to deliver you from my hand? This is real power here. That's a real fire over there. You think your God is going to be able to save you from my fiery furnace? And they answered, he is able. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know. We're not going to bow down. (laughs) So he might kill us, he might not. But even though he slay me, I will not disobey him. Picking up on Job 13.15. Anyway, we're not going to bow down, and I threw them in, and they survive. All right, but it is a little bit of a picture of hell to some degree, right? Here's a here's a here's an alternate question. If God is the one that throws you into the fire, who will be able to deliver you from God's hand? No one. No one. No one can deliver you from why? Because He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because of omnipotence. Because of his power, his position in the universe. That's a terrifying thing to have God against you, right? Having God condemning you? Nothing will stop that. There is no intervention that can be worked. The only one who can rescue you from God's hand is God himself. It's the only one who can do it. Anyway, so much for the Haitian boys t shirt. Um, but the idea is if God is against you, you're lost. If God is for you, nothing can stop your salvation. That's the sense that we get here, isn't it, in verse 31? If God is for us. So the issue is God's omnipotence, his absolute reign over all things in heaven and earth. The question does not imply that no one is against us. Actually, we have imposing enemies fighting against our faith and our blessedness. Satan and the demons are overwhelmingly powerful. So also are ungodly leaders, government officials, even enemies within our own households. Jesus said a man's enemies will be the members of his own family. Right? Powerful. They actually can and do make life extremely miserable and difficult for Christians for a time. They are assaulting the Christians. That's true. In some case, even killing them. But the question implies that their opposition can in no way derail God's ultimate purpose for us as lined out in verses 29 and 30. See, they can't stop that. They can't stop for no, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They can't stop that. All right, we're gonna stop here. I wanna ask one question. And I don't have an answer. But I want you to look again at verse t- uh, 30 and see if you can notice something missing from the sequence and see if you can possibly explain it. Someone read verse
4: 30.
1: Have you ever heard me talk about the stages of salvation? And I talk about three stages justification. Mm, And glorification. What is the middle? Sanctification. sanctification? Are you all here tonight for that? I am. That's my purpose tonight. Sanctification. What is it? Progressive growth in, you know, conformity to Christ and all that. What do you notice about verse 30? Just offhand. Do you notice anything? It's not there. Jason, why not?
3: (laughs) It's.
4: (laughs)
2: <laughs> Wes? <laughs> is, is being to the image. And that is included in the idea
1: of being right? right? I was gonna include it in glorification. I was gonna include it
2: was to be conformed, so I just kind
1: of just right, that's good too. It's all it's all part of it. But here's the thing, in second Corinthians three, it says we are being transformed into his image what? From glory to glory. So it's at least possible that Paul thought of sanctification as a subset of glorification that begins the moment you're justified, then there's a glorification process that happens here on earth from glory to glory and then it's consummated then. That's the only best explanation I can have for why he skips sanctification. Alright, because he's seeing it as part of, it's post-justification isn't it? So it's after that and I think it might be included. Any thoughts on that? At four minutes past when we should have stopped? <laughs> anyway just think about it and uh, I, I'd be interested in any theories you have but those are those are my thoughts okay Jason would you mind brother closing in prayer Father
3: we thank you thank you for your words is truth and God it's your truth that we need you are that way is the truth of the so God I pray that you would continue to conform us to your image continue to sanctify us and God we know that we will be glorified with you one day God we thank you for this day and pray that we would go to live every day for your glory and it's in Jesus name we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom.